0: Quick disclaimer, this case does involve the sexual assault of a teenager, and though the information is provided without gratuitous detail, it is still difficult to listen to. Listener discretion is advised. In 1993, Sequoia Vargas told her mother she was spending the night with a friend. When she didn't come home, her family reported her missing to the Hawaii County Police, who initially believed the teen had run away. The case would be reclassified as a homicide when someone came forward with a confession, but it would still take nearly seven years for justice. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. welcome back if you've been here before. I appreciate everyone who clicks play, whether you are listening to every episode or you just drop in when a topic interests you. This week's episode is a missing and murdered Indigenous women case, and it's actually both in that we do know the victim was murdered, however, she remains missing. This is the case of Sequoia Vargas, who lived in the Puna District on the Big Island of Hawaii. Sequoia was not native Hawaiian, though her uncle said that people often assumed she was. She was actually from an indigenous group called the Roramari, which is also known as Rolamuli and also as Tarahumara. Tarahumara is the Spanish colonizer word for the group, and I see Roramari used most often, so we will go with that. For those new to crimelines, most episodes do not include a history lesson at the beginning, but the MMIW cases do. So we are going to go over some of that before we jump into the case. The Raramari are the original inhabitants of what is the present-day Mexican state of Chihuahua, which is on the border of the U.S. It borders both New Mexico and Texas. When Spain began colonizing Mexico, the Raramari resisted by not fighting, but by moving. They moved farther into the mountains where they flourished in parts of the Sierra Madre Occidental. The Raramari population is estimated to be between 50 and 70,000 people today. It's difficult to really know because Mexico does not have tribal enrollment. While they do recognize indigenous people and there are laws protecting sovereignty to some degree, it's not the same in the U.S. or in Canada as far as having people enroll or claim a certain tribe. So this number comes largely from self-reporting. About 15% of Mexicans identify as indigenous, which is in contrast to 2% in the U.S., and roughly 5% in Canada. The word Roramari may mean runners on foot or those who run fast. The meaning is not fully settled on, but the idea of their name referring back to running does make sense. And anyone who has read the book Born to Run already knows what I'm talking about. I have not read the book. So when I read that the Raramuri were known for their long-distance running, I had to look into it, and not from an internet article, but a peer-reviewed anthropology paper discussing it. Not that anthropology is free from racial stereotypes, believe me, I am fully aware of that, but this article actually addressed that issue as well. The paper is called Running in Tarahumara Culture, Persistence Hunting, Foot Racing, Dancing, Work, and the Fallacy of the Athletic Savage. It will be linked in the sources. This article included observations as well as interviews with 10 Raramari runners. It shows that Raramari running is not done in a training sense, like people would train for marathons, but as much more of a spiritual and cultural place. It's believed to have originated out of necessity. The people had to chase down animals during hunting, but then foot races became a social activity, and along with other endurance activities, they took on a spiritual value as well. Long-distance running is considered a form of prayer. There is an ESPN documentary on not just their running, but the impact Born to Run had on the community of people who were just trying to live their lives and then became an American runner's tourist destination. That documentary is called The Infinite Race, and I think it approaches issues that give more of a picture of what's going on in Roramari life, more than just this idea of barefoot running or the ultra runner. The truth is that the Roramari survived colonialism by moving up into the mountains, but now they are under modern threats like tourism. There have literally been tours to go see them, not unlike the Amish tours we have in the U.S., but unlike many of the Amish tours, which are run by Amish people, the Roramari are not running these tours, they're not profiting from them, and they're not entirely welcoming of them. They have not, as a group, sought this publicity. They also have other threats, like mining and extraction companies that have been coming closer and closer to their homes. And they also have faced drug cartel violence as the cartels have cleared illegal roads through their land, and they've killed people who have objected. The Roramari need actual help. They need protection, like everyone else does, from those seeking to profit off of them and their lands. As most of you who have been listening for a while should know, I do donate money monthly to charities, and this month's donation is going to Tierra Nativa, which has an indigenous rights and conservation program, as well as a program that teaches children and trains teachers in the native language of the Roramari. I will leave a link in the show notes in case anyone else wants to donate. So like I said at the top, Sequoia Vargas was a Roramari teen, but she did not grow up in Mexico. She and her three siblings were actually raised in Fallbrook, California, which is by San Diego. She grew up in a home with a mix of English and Spanish being spoken, But rather than speak either, Sequoia made up her own language that no one else fully understood, not even her siblings who she played with all the time. She used this made-up language persistently enough that her mother eventually hired an English tutor to make sure Sequoia could speak well enough for school. Sequoia's language was just an early glimpse into the creative and deep thinker she would become. In 1989, when Sequoia was 13, her family moved to Hawaii after her mom had heard it was a good place to raise children. They lived in the Puna District, which is on the east coast of the Big Island. Sequoia very quickly picked up what is locally known as Pidgin, which is actually Hawaiian Creole. So a pidgin language is a blend of multiple languages used when people need to communicate. It's like Spanglish. It exists within that setting and between those people, but it's an acquired language. No one speaks it as a stable first language. Pidgin Hawaiian started during the time of the plantations, when immigration to the islands was high And Hawaiian natives and immigrants were working together. When there is widespread use of a pidgin language over time, it does sometimes become stable, forming grammatical rules and a vast vocabulary. And then children are brought up speaking it as a first language. That's when it becomes what is considered a Creole language. In this case, though, Hawaiian Creole actually replaced Pidgin Hawaiian rather than developed from it. Pidgin Hawaiian was based much more on the native Hawaiian language, but as English was on the rise after colonization, Hawaiian Creole took hold, which includes a lot more American English influences. So though it is referred to informally as Pidgin, Hawaiian Creole is not the same as Pidgin Hawaiian, and it is also not technically Pidgin. It's a Creole language. In 2015, the language was recognized by the government as one of the official languages of Hawaii. After a five year study showed how widespread the usage was, around half the population speaks it, and its use is more widespread now than Native Hawaiian, which I will say, is always a concern when a language is being pushed out due to colonialism. But though Hawaiian Creole is a recognized language now, it is often looked down on since education is conducted in English, so it is seen as the language of the uneducated, which isn't unlike what we see with other Creole languages like Jamaican Patois. Classism ruins the party yet again. And so do my digressions. We finally got to the case and we get derailed because I got wrapped up in reading about linguistics. So if you are interested during that, definitely check out the Sophie Sergi case where we talk about a different language in depth, but let's actually get back on track and discuss this case. Sequoia Vargas was speaking Hawaiian Creole so well and due to her appearance, people assumed she was native Hawaiian Even though she had moved there at 13, she was just really that good at picking up languages. After Sequoia finished her first year of high school in Hawaii, she decided she wanted to pursue art and music in college. She wrote in her diary towards the end of summer break that she knew she had to focus on getting good grades so that she could get into a good university. And school was about to start again when 16-year-old Sequoia Vargas told her mother that she was going to spend the night at her friend Jessica's house on Sunday, August 22nd, 1993. The two decided to head to Kehenna Beach, which is a black sand beach about 20 minutes south of Jessica's home. On the way back from the beach, the girls decided to hitch a ride. The person who picked them up said his name was Damien, and when he saw Sequoia's skateboard, he told the girls that he was a professional skateboarder himself. Now, there are two versions of what happened next. Early reports said that the girls went inside Jessica's house when Damien called and invited them to go out to his cousin's house to hang out and watch TV. Later reports said that Damien hadn't called, but he rather invited them as they pulled up to Jessica's house. Jessica's mother told her she couldn't go, but Sequoia wanted to, so she got into the car and they drove off. Sequoia's mom wasn't expecting her home that night since she was spending the night with Jessica, and Jessica was waiting on Sequoia to get back to her house all night. When she didn't do so by the morning, Sequoia's family reported her missing right away. Sequoia did have a fair amount of freedom in her house. She would go to parties, not more than your average 16-year-old, but she was allowed to go. She wasn't a kid who got in trouble much, so her mom's rule was that she had to call and check in, let her know where she was going to be, that sort of thing not really anything outside of the norm for a 16-year-old, and Sequoia was good about checking in, even if she didn't update her mom every time plans changed, like when she left Jessica's house to go watch TV at someone else's house. When the family explained this to the police, their point was that Sequoia wouldn't have stayed out all night and into the next morning without checking in. But it sounds like the police interpreted this as Sequoia came and went as she pleased and was just out without permission. At worst, she was a runaway. This would be something the family struggled with for years to come, that the investigation into where Sequoia was didn't start immediately because the police did not see the urgency and fearing that this was not being taken seriously, the family investigated on their own, starting with Jessica. She gave them the name of the driver and his description and a description of his car. The family eventually learned that he was 22-year-old Richard Damien Serrano. All of the leads the family generated were sent to the police, but it wasn't until mid-September that Damien was even spoken to. Damien had only been in Hawaii to visit his daughter. He actually lived in California with his mother. He had returned there days after Sequoia was last seen. So in mid-September, which was two to three weeks after Sequoia disappeared, Damien was interviewed by the local police in Santa Cruz, California. They did take Damien to the station for this interview, so it was recorded, but he was not in custody. Damien said that he did take Sequoia to his cousin's house But they only stayed there for 20 to 30 minutes before they went to buy some beer. He said they were driving near his daughter's home when Sequoia saw another friend who was driving a pickup truck. She decided she wanted to hang out with that friend instead, so Damien let her out and she got into the truck. That was the last he saw of her. This statement seemed sufficiently vague but he did give some location information and a description of that truck. It was certainly going to take a lot more than that for the investigators to consider Damien Serrano cleared. So they spoke with his cousin, Jason McCubbins, whose house it was that they watched TV at, and also another man who was there that night named Matthew Gibbs. Matthew Gibbs was 19 years old, and he was the only one of the three men who actually knew Sequoia before that night. And when he spoke with authorities four days after Damien was interviewed, Matthew ended up confessing. You would think that a confession coming in within a month of a disappearance would mean that this case would be resolved quickly. But that was not the case. So let me tell you what Matthew said happened, and then we'll get into the delays to justice. Matthew said Sequoia had come to the house with Damien, where he and Jason McCubbins were already hanging out. They offered Sequoia some alcohol, and she was drinking and hanging out with them while dancing, and she fell and hit her head. Sequoia was unconscious and they carried her into a bedroom. While she was passed out, the men decided they were going to sexually assault her. Damien raped her first, then Jason, but Matthew said that all he did was, quote, grab her okole part, and okole means butt. Matthew told the police that he had Jason's knife on him and he started poking it into the mattress just playing around, but said he definitely did not cut or stab Sequoia. Damien then attempted to rape Sequoia again, but she woke up at this point and started screaming. Jason yelled that they had to shut her up, and he punched her, with this blow rendering her unconscious. They then carried her out to a family member's Subaru and put her in the trunk. And they drove out to the cliffs on the easternmost point on the island. Jason and Damien took Sequoia from the trunk and carried her over to the sea cliff. There, together, the two heaved her over the edge of a 20-foot cliff into the water or at least they tried to get her into the water. She landed on some rocks and she screamed. Matthew said that Damien and Jason climbed down to her and came back up without her. He didn't know what happened except that Damien was wet and Sequoia was gone. They then left the scene and Matthew went back to his father's house. Later on, Jason and Damien came by and told him that they had to come up with a cohesive story and alibis. Matthew refused to talk to them about it. But then when Jason came back alone later to wash out the Subaru, Matthew did let him in. After this confession, the police were able to get a warrant to search Jason's house where they found blood-stained sheets. DNA tests confirmed that the blood was Sequoia's. Jason McCubbins was arrested, but he was released without charges, and his name was withheld from the media. He soon moved to Maui, which is the nearest island to the Big Island. The police told the media that they anticipated more arrests. What the investigators really hoped at this point, prior to taking anyone into custody was more forensic evidence, particularly Sequoia's body. They searched the coastline extensively, including by helicopter, but they couldn't find her remains. They believed her body had been pulled out to sea. Of course, Sequoia's family was frustrated that the search for her took so long. Had they not assumed she was a runaway, they may have learned what happened earlier. After all, Matthew Gibbs confessed pretty quickly once the police confronted him. And if they conducted that search of the water and the coastline days after Sequoia disappeared rather than weeks, perhaps they would have more solid evidence. So our timeline so far. Sequoia went missing on August 22nd. By mid-September, the main suspects had been interviewed And by the beginning of October, the police knew who did it and what they did. But due to the lack of direct evidence, it would take another year and a half before there was an arrest that would stick. A grand jury indicted Matthew Gibbs in March of 1995. The main evidence against him was his confession. He was indicted for sexual assault. The indictment did indicate that the victim was incapacitated or physically helpless at the time. Matthew pleaded not guilty and was put on supervised release pending trial. It was just four months later in July of 1995 that he took a plea deal. He admitted to having touched Sokoya's butt and breast while she was unconscious. In exchange for pleading no contest to a lesser charge of third-degree sexual assault, Matthew promised to cooperate in the investigation into the men believed to have killed Sequoia. In this plea deal, he was facing up to five years in prison, but he would not be sentenced until after his cooperation. The following month, in August 1995, the grand jury indicted Jason McCubbins and Damian Serrano on the charges of second-degree murder and two counts of kidnapping. Damian was also charged with sexual assault. After the indictments came down, the police attempted to arrest the two men. Jason McCubbins initially gave a fake name twice, and when that didn't work, he tried to run. That also didn't work, and he was taken into custody. Because he tried to evade the police at his arrest, he was initially denied bail. As for Damien Serrano, he was not arrested right away because they didn't know where he was. In the two years from Sequoia's disappearance to the indictment, he had moved out of his mother's house and they didn't know where he went. And it was while he was officially a fugitive that Jason, his cousin, decided to make a deal, and it involved a confession. Jason's statement backed up most of Matthew's story, but there were some important differences. Matthew made it sound like Sequoia had simply had too much to drink, and then she passed out when she bumped her head. But Jason admitted that Sequoia was actually drugged without her knowledge. Damien had slipped prescription cough syrup Jason had in his home into Sequoia's drink, and that is what made her pass out. Jason also said he was the one who did not rape Sequoia, but that Matthew Gibbs did. He said he had been drinking too much that day and was physically unable to. So basically, we have both of them claiming they were the one who didn't do it and the other guy was the one who did. But they did both agree that Damien was involved. Jason said that Sequoia was still passed out on the bed when he and Matthew left to buy beer. When they returned was when Matthew took the knife and pretended like he was going to stab Sequoia, but he stabbed the mattress instead. At one point, his hand slipped and he cut the webbing between his thumb and forefinger. This wound was confirmed by Matthew and Matthew's father. Matthew had told his dad he got the injury in a fight. Jason would later say in a separate statement that Matthew may have stabbed Sequoia during this incident, but that is not what he said in his initial statement. Jason said that he and Matthew left to go get a bandage for Matthew's hand after he cut himself. When they returned, Damien was coming out of the bathroom. Sequoia was wrapped in a sheet and Jason then helped carry her to the trunk. At some point in all of this, Sequoia did come to and start yelling, and both he and Damien had punched her, and that it was Damien's blow that knocked her out again. When they got to the cliff, he said they carried her to the cliff's edge with him holding her arms and Damien holding her ankles. They swung her so that she would go over the cliff, but when they did that, Her arm slipped from Jason's grasp, so she didn't clear the rocks. According to Jason, they left the cliffside and were away for a few minutes when Damien said he wanted to go down there and make sure Sequoia was dead. Jason and Damien climbed down to her, and while they were there, she was groaning. Then, according to Jason, Damien raped her again and then he banged her head against a rock and dragged her unconscious into the water. He swam her out far enough into the water that he didn't think she would wash back up. When he returned to the cliff, Damien told Jason and Matthew that he was going to say that he dropped her off somewhere if the police came asking. With this confession, Jason got a similar deal as Matthew, though with more severe charges, since he did admit to doing a lot more that night. Jason pleaded no contest to the reduced charges of manslaughter and a single count of kidnapping. If he agreed to tell all of this to a jury in the eventual trial of Damian Serrano, he would get a recommended sentence of 20 years total on both charges. And like with Matthew Gibbs, he would not be sentenced until Damien Serrano's trial. When that trial would happen was a question mark because they still couldn't find him. America's Most Wanted reached out to feature the case, and featured Damien as a fugitive, but the prosecutor was worried the publicity may jeopardize the case. It took four years after the arrest warrant was issued before Damien was tracked down in September 1999. Federal agents had tracked him to Guadalajara, Mexico. As they began closing in, Damien turned himself in, He was then extradited back to Hawaii. Though the media reporting certainly framed him as a fugitive from the law, Damien's attorney rejected the idea that he was on the run. He said that Damien returned to California days after Sequoia went missing because that's where he lived. He stayed there for a while, even after giving a statement to the police and being made aware he was likely a suspect. He didn't go to Mexico until he moved there for work, which is a perfectly valid and common reason for moving. And speaking of that statement to the police that he gave, in a pretrial motion, his attorney tried to get the statement excluded at trial. He claimed that Damien was a suspect at the time and should have had his Miranda rights read to him. The state argued that even if he was a suspect, the law was that he had to be in custody before triggering the need for a Miranda warning and that Damien was not in custody. The judge ended up allowing the statement in, which doesn't seem like a huge loss to the defense on the surface. Damien made no admissions in it except that he saw Sequoia that night and dropped her off with friends. But if you think about it, it did box Damien into a story. It limited his options, and this was the story the jury was going to hear. His best bet would be to remain consistent with it. The trial started in the spring of 2000. As was part of their deals, Jason and Matthew testified against Damien, and some of the details of Jason's confession were made public for the first time including an absolutely heartbreaking detail. Jason said that while they were down on that cliff shortly before she died, Sequoia screamed, for God and for her mom. When he was asked why he participated in this horrific night, Jason said it was because Damien told him to. Some of Jason's testimony at trial was backed up by his mother, Maureen. She was living in Florida at the time of the trial, and she testified through a deposition that was then read to the jury. She said that late on the night Sequoia went missing, she saw Damien threatening Matthew Gibbs. She testified that she never saw Matthew cower like he did that night. She also testified that Damien was wet, which is in line with the story of him swimming Sequoia's body out to sea. Maureen also said that Jason told her that he thought someone died that night, and she told him to shut up. When she confronted Damien about everything the next morning, he pushed Jason, cursed at him, and left the house. She said she didn't see Damien again, but he did call her from California a couple of days later, asking if they found anything. Damien's defense attorney brought into question Maureen's story because she didn't come forward to the police in all the time Damien was a wanted man. It was just weeks before the trial, seven years after that night, that she made these statements. Damien's defense was that Jason and Matthew were lying. They made up this story to implicate Damien in order to get plea deals for themselves. The truth was that they were the two who attacked and killed Sequoia, not Damien. He wasn't even there. When Damien took the stand in his own defense, he stuck with the story he told the police initially and had been played for the jury. He said that, He and Sequoia left Jason's home at some point, and while driving, Sequoia saw some friends who were in an oncoming pickup. It was around 9 or 9.30 at night, and she left to go with the friends. He then went to his aunt's house, where he was staying, and went to sleep. But his story seemed a little unlikely, and the state jumped to point this out. In the dark... How did Sequoia know her friends were in the truck when she couldn't have seen much more than headlights? Why was Sequoia's blood found in Jason's house if she left there alive and well? That would have meant she went back. So who drove her back there? Why did she go back? The defense simply answered this by saying that they didn't know why she went back or how she got back, but that Damien didn't do it. The people putting him at the scene were incentivized witnesses who made deals to save themselves. The defense speculated that Jason and Matthew, who both said they were drinking all day, wanted to rape Sequoia but couldn't. Their frustration over it drove their anger and that's what led to her murder. The jury took the case on a Tuesday. They deliberated into Wednesday and while taking a break in the hallway, A man walked by them and told them that they had to find Damien guilty. Four of the jurors heard this comment themselves, and a fifth heard about it from someone else. It was reported to the judge, and the defense asked for a mistrial. But after the judge interviewed the jurors, she found that they would be able to ignore that incident in their deliberations. This wasn't the only reason the defense wanted a mistrial, though. They had another reason. There was a new witness who came forward towards the end of the trial. They said the prosecution knew about the witness on the Friday before the trial ended, but did not tell the defense until Monday, which was the last day of testimony. The delay prevented them from calling this witness to the stand the judge decided to allow the defense to interview the witness without the jury present before she ruled on it. This witness, Matthew Soriano, was 22 years old at the time. So at the time Sequoia went missing, he would have been 15 or 16, right around her age. He said he was walking on the beach on August 22nd, 1993, and he saw four people walking towards him. Matthew said it was Sequoia and three men. He had a short conversation with Sequoia in which he told her that the guy she was with looked like trouble and that she should go smoke with him and his friends. He said he was sure of the date in part because he kept having visions of the number 22. Matthew then went on to describe the three men, none of which matched Damien Serrano's description which is what makes him an interesting witness for the defense. But then he was asked if he saw any of the people who were on the beach that night in the courtroom, and he pointed out four people who looked like them. One of them was Damien. He had also pointed out two members of the prosecution team and a corrections officer. At that point, the defense said they would not have called him as a witness, so their case was not damaged by the delay. It was on Thursday that the jury came back with their verdict. They found Damien Serrano guilty of second-degree murder, kidnapping, and two counts of third-degree sexual assault. When the verdict was read, Damien dropped his head and teared up. At sentencing, the judge gave Damien the chance to speak, and he first declined. She paused and then said that she had a hard time understanding that he had nothing to say. Damien then said he was innocent. The judge said she didn't believe him and that he seemed to lack a conscience. Damien then said that he did feel badly about what happened to Sequoia, but he didn't do it. Damien was then sentenced to two life terms with the possibility of parole, for the murder and the kidnapping convictions, plus 20 years for the two counts of sexual assault. In Hawaii, the parole authority determines the minimum sentence before parole eligibility, and they set it at 50 years each for the kidnapping and murder and 10 each for the two sexual assaults. The judge had ordered these sentences to be consecutive, not concurrent, meaning he has to serve one after the other, putting his parole eligibility at 120 years. Barring a successful appeal, it does not appear that he is going to get out of prison. His appeals have been denied, though he does maintain his innocence. With Damien's case resolved, Jason McCubbins and Matthew Gibbs were also sentenced. Matthew Gibbs was given probation and put on the state's Sex Offenders Registry. Jason McCubbins was given a 20-year sentence for the two charges. He has since been released and is also on the offenders list for kidnapping a minor. Hawaii's Offender Registry does include both sex offenders and those who commit certain crimes against a minor, like kidnapping. According to the registry website, Jason McCubbins is considered non-compliant since he hasn't fulfilled the mandatory annual reporting since 2018. Should the state pursue this, non-compliance is a felony punishable by up to five years in prison. So, you know, if he's listening, he might want to go report his address to his local station. But before we close out this episode, I do want to take the opportunity to highlight another missing persons case that some believe may be connected. Shortly before going missing, Sequoia Vargas was dating 19-year-old Joshua Curry, but they had split up. The night before she was killed, they were at a party and talked about getting back together. But Sequoia went missing before they ever saw each other again. A year later, Josh was living in a remote subdivision on the Big Island with a roommate. He confessed to his mother that he was struggling with an addiction to heroin and he wanted her help getting clean. He was on the waiting list for the local methadone clinic. He was reported missing about a month after this in November, 1994. His mother said she last saw him when she dropped him off at his apartment. The family has heard a lot of rumors about what happened to him over the years, including that he was killed in a dispute over a robbery and that he overdosed. Someone else told them that Joshua went on the run to avoid some people who were after him, but he had left all of his belongings behind, including his driver's license. He would have had trouble getting out of Hawaii without that. A lot of reports repeat that Josh was due to be a witness in the trial over Sequoia's death, and the implication here being that that may have something to do with why he disappeared. However, he disappeared months before the grand jury even indicted anyone, so it's definitely premature to say he would have been a trial witness. Maybe they meant he was set to testify in front of the grand jury and was expected to eventually be a trial witness should it go to trial. But it's unclear what, if anything, he knew that would have been relevant to the case. Joshua's case is considered open, but it is not being actively investigated. There have reportedly been some confessions, though no charges have been laid. The case is still classified as a missing person's case, though his family does believe he was murdered. They would very much still like to know what happened to their son, so I wanted to include this information in this episode to boost the signal on this cold case. According to the Doe Network, Josh is five foot ten, and at the time he went missing, he weighed about 140 pounds. He is a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes, He has a dragon tattoo on his upper right arm. If you know anything, you can call the Hawaii County Police at 808-961-2211, and the number will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.